One, two, three. The following is the full conversation from our episode, Debt, Democracy, and Disarray, with Astra Taylor, author of The Age of Insecurity. She's the co-founder of The Debt Collective. Medical bills, credit card charges, and unusually high interest rates are enriching some people while debilitating a whole lot of the rest of us. Meanwhile, climate changes are being felt all across the U.S. and the world. Our food supply, our mental health, and democracy itself all seem to be teetering on a brink. So how did we get here, and how can we get out? My guest this time is Astra Taylor, a writer, documentarian, and activist who has spent years thinking about debt, insecurity, and the way our feelings about both are manipulated by powerful institutions and profiteers. As co-founder of the Debt Collective, a union of debtors, Taylor helped organize people to disrupt that narrative and demand fairness, and in some cases, debt cancellation or abolition. Now, the last time I talked to her, which was about a book titled Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, our conversation ranged all over. So when I heard she was out with a new book, I suggested we meet on a couch, which we did, thanks to the good people at the studios of CUNY TV in New York. There we talked about her latest book, which is called The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. And I share an edited version of that conversation next. I'll be back at the end with some thoughts about language and disruption. Thanks for joining me. Astra Taylor, I am so happy to welcome you here to this exciting couch situation. I'm excited to be here with you. (laughs) And even though we're talking about The Age of Insecurity, your beautiful new book, which is based on your series of Massey Lectures for the CBC, Canadian Broadcasters, I'm feeling quite secure that this conversation is going to take us into all sorts of places that are familiar territory to our audience, but also new. You pull a lot of things together. But before we begin, who's on your mind? We're sitting here in the kind of middle of November, right before Thanksgiving. There's a lot going on. Who are you holding in your, in your heart and your head as we start to talk? Oh, I mean, definitely the first thing that comes to mind is the war in Gaza and the people there who are certainly feeling very insecure, very vulnerable right now. Um, so that's, that's been a preoccupation for me and so many other, other people I know. What was it that took you to this subject for those lectures in this book? Yeah, this is one of those projects where it emerged out of an invitation. So they invited me to give the 2023 CBC Massey Lectures. And part of that project is first writing a book um, and writing a book with the knowledge that the lectures would ultimately be broadcast on the radio and thinking about uh, wanting to reach folks and, and you know, something that might be able to connect with the random person maybe listening in their car, um, you know, who isn't someone who knows Astra Taylor and knows my organizing and knows my previous uh, projects. And so I wanted to speak to a, a condition that felt universal. <laughs> and I certainly feel insecure. <laughs> feel insecure about, you know, uh, saving for retirement. I feel apprehensive about climate change. You know, I feel worried about um, uh, war and violence. You know, we, I, you know, sometimes I uh, feel 
you know, insecure on a more banal level. We all do. And I just felt that there was, there was something there and, you know, the, and, and that this was a, something that is widely felt, but also transcends the, the personal and the political. That my insecurity is not just my fault. It's a product of these larger political and economic conditions. And that this, this concept actually would allow me to sort of zoom in and zoom out from the micro to the macro, the emotional to the economic, the psychological to the political. And I just felt there was something there uh, worth exploring. And ultimately, I, I think, you know, I, it actually provides a new lens um, through which to understand mm. our broader economic system. You start with the mythological. Mm -hmm. um, tell us about the goddess on whom we can cast all our blame yeah. <laughs> for this yeah. question. <laughs> I open with an, an obscure Roman myth, um, and it, it, you know, it's just obscure to, to the, you know, the average person, but it's actually a myth that has uh, reappeared in philosophy and psychoanalysis. Heidegger famously wrote about it, and um, the psychoanalyst Julia Kristeva. So it's known to some intellectuals, but it's the myth of the goddess Cura, and Cura in Latin means care. Uh, and so essentially it's a creation myth, and like so many creation myths, it begins with mud. <laughs> so Cura is crossing a river, and she just gets inspired, she picks up some clay, and she molds a human figure. And she invites the god Jupiter to breathe life into the, the figure, um, and uh, then there's a dispute over what it should be named. Because Hera says, I made this, I should name it. And Jupiter says, well, hold on, I gave it life. And then Mother Earth rises up and says, well, hold on, I gave the clay, it should be mine. So they call on the god Saturn to say, you know, settle this dispute. And he says, okay, you know, we're gonna call uh, this figure hummus dirt, because it's made from dirt. But Cura will possess this figure as long as it lives. And so what that means is, as long as, you know, the human creature exists, it will be possessed by care. And care has a bunch of meanings. Care is... Could be good, could be not so could good. Could be good, right? Care also means worry, right? You know, um, care means concern. Care means taking care. Uh, but, but care in that, that Latin word has all of, these, all of these meanings. So care, anxiety, concern, worry. Um, but I think, you know, why I was attracted to that myth is care is at the center of human existence. We need care. It's a very, it's not a, it's not a self-aggrandizing myth, right? This isn't like Promethe, the Promethean myth where, myth where we get fire. It's like, you're vulnerable, you're made of mud, you need care. And, and that word cura is actually the root, etymologically, of the word insecurity and security. Securitas, which, you know, so cura is in there. So care for me is really at the center of, um, uh, of this conversation and care is at the center to me of a conception of security that's worth striving for. So that gets to this question of nature versus nurture in a sense. It's mm -hmm. like what of our condition is just natural to us as humans, yes. courtesy of Kura and the others, um, and what is manufactured? Mm. Are we just naturally strivers? Yeah, well, so what I try to do in the book is to break insecurity into two categories. and. So I say, yes, there's an element of nature here. And the myth of Cura really gets at that. We are insecure beings. We're vulnerable. We need care throughout our lives from cradle to grave. We're, you know, 
subject to being wounded psychologically or physically. We need other people. So we are insecure, and I call this existential insecurity. And I contrast that with what I call manufactured insecurity, all the ways that we are actually made insecure. Um, so you know, there's no advertisement that will ever tell you, hey, you're enough, you're great, and it's the world that needs changing. Um, you know, we're constantly being told by the news media to fear our neighbors, you know, uh, uh, to be afraid of violent crime, even when crime statistics are going down, as they are actually at this moment. Uh, you know, we are told that the only way to find security in old age is through making investments in a volatile stock market. Um, so these are ways that, you know, insecurity is, this fundamental existential insecurity is actually um, uh, worsened. And I think that, that one thing I'm trying to show in this book is this, this manuf these manufactured insecurities are actually really central to the way that our economic system functions um, and that the only way uh, to actually overcome them, to become secure, is to work collaborative, collaboratively, collectively to try to bring about political change. So at this point, I think it'd be helpful to mm -hmm. introduce you to people that don't know your work, as you mentioned. Um, you've worked for years with the Debt Collective, an organization that you helped to found, addressing this issue of student debt, mortgage debt, healthcare debt. It expanded since the early days when we first met around Occupy. What's the nature of the problem right now as you see it just on the debt front? And then we'll go back into some of the themes of the book that talk about how we got here and how we might get out. Yeah. Yes, the Debt Collective is the world's first union for debtors. So people probably know what a labor union is, right? It's when workers come together in the workplace to fight for better wages, for benefits, um, sometimes for bigger social policy changes as well. Uh, and what we recognize that the Debt Collective is that um, you know people are not in debt simply because they've made bad choices, but rather because we are uh, not able to access public services because we're underpaid at the job, leaving us no choice to borrow. So the lack of universal health care is why 100 million Americans have medical debt and why medical debt is one of the leading cause of bankruptcy in this country. Why is there $1.8 trillion of student debt? Well, because we don't have free college. We used to a few generations ago, but uh, state investment has been stripped away. So our, our insight is that you know, debt can feel very overwhelming, very oppressive. It can make you insecure, financially insecure. But actually, when you start talking about it with others, you realize you're actually in the same boat, and you start coming together to um, uh, demand uh, change, to demand debt cancellation, to demand the provision of these public goods. Uh, debt actually can become a source of power, right? So we can find strength in that, strength in our, our financial obligations. And I think that really... My organizing really did shape this book in the sense that you know, a core, um, one of the core sort of drivers of this is, is this, the fact that you know, economic issues are always also emotional yeah. issues. We can't just separate our discussion of the economy from the way it feels to be embedded in it. And I you know, organize with folks every day who feel so viscerally that you know, the spike of shame when the debt collector calls, right? The sense like I did something wrong because I can't pay my student loans. You know, again, the worry about what the you know, what it's going to be like when you're older, how you're going to take care of your family, um, and 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 those registers, right? The sort of quantitative and the qualitative, like they really need to be discussed mm. as one thing, and um, and that's part of what draws me to the idea of insecurity. Is it? It's got that emotional component. So this is very much a book that is informed by 
the work I do every day with the Debt Collective. You speak about economics as a mechanism of control and mm -hmm. debt specifically as a mechanism of control. In, in a piece that you did, a film that you did with the wonderful artist Molly Crabapple yeah. for The Intercept. It's called Your Debt is Someone Else's Asset. Take a look. A significant amount of the $770 billion of credit card debt slashing around is medical bills. Ambulance rides, doctor's visits, and surgeries paid for with the swipe of a little plastic card. Then there's the additional $140 billion of medical debt and collections, combined with an estimated $50 billion in back rent and $1.4 trillion in auto loans. Much of this debt didn't exist a few generations ago. Consider the $1.8 trillion in student loans this country now holds, which wasn't a problem in the 1960s when college was often free, or close to it. Ronald Reagan helped change that. He made his name by demonizing protesters on the University of Berkeley campus. In 1967, as governor of California, he pushed the university system to start charging students tuition so they would, quote, think twice about whether they wanted to pay to carry a picket sign. So pretty blatant there. Control uh, through debt as a way of diminishing or at least discouraging student protest on the UC Berkeley campus. I didn't know that about Ronald Reagan, um, so thank you for that. You have many other examples of debt and indebtedness as a means of control in your book. And you start way back in the era of enclosure um, in the UK. Talk about that transition that historians like Peter Leinbach have, have written about enclosing land that had been available for people to, um, well, common, but you need to define mm, the word. Mm. Yeah, so I'll, this, this book weaves together a lot of different things. So it has a sort of history of capitalism that is told through different lenses throughout the essays. It's also got some memoir aspects. It's got some myth. It's got some philosophy. So it does weave together a lot of different um, things. You know, but what I'm, what, what I'm trying to show in the history of it, the enclosure movement and the history of the commons, which is really the, the genesis of capitalism and, and uh, market society as we know it, is that insecurity is not an unfortunate byproduct of our economic system, but actually central to it. It's constitutive of it. Actually, uh, you know, in the, in the eyes of a capitalist boss, an insecure worker is a good worker because they're not going to challenge you. <laughs> and so going back to the, the beginning of capitalism, it was the transition from feudalism to a market society. And there was a long and varied process we now call the enclosure movement, started in the 1200s, went on for centuries, really picked up steam in the 1700s and 1800s, where it, it was exactly as the name implies, the enclosure of once common land, the privatization of land. And this happened through thousands of acts of parliament that privatized um, millions uh, and millions of acres. And the people who had lived on those lands, depended on those lands, were commoners, yeah. right? And they had what were considered customary rights. You could glean and go pick up kindling. You could uh, go fish. You could graze, uh, your graze your animals. And those rights were stripped away as land was privatized. And commoning then uh, and this is, uh, you know, an insight I got from the historian Peter Leinbach, who I know is a friend of the show and just an amazing human being, that commoning was both a noun and a verb. So the commons were literally those fields and forests, but it was also a way of life, a way of communally managing those resources and living together. 
And that's also part what was lost. But the point is that as people were kicked off those lands, they could no longer provide for their own subsistence. They were made insecure. They lost the security of the commons. And then they had nothing to sell but their labor. So that's when they become wage laborers. They, the mass migrations into the cities, the urban slums, and the rise of industrialism as we know it. Um, and of course, you know, it's very easy to understand that people had to be severed from their livelihood, severed from the land, made insecure in order to um, submit to this new mode of production. And, you know, I, I have some quotes from some of the enclosers, the landlords, and they say, when you're enclosing with, uh, with hedges, with trees, don't plant a tree that bears fruit because you don't want folks to have free food that they can eat. Um, and it's very conscious that what they're going to do is make people insecure to make them more pliable workers. And this resonates today, 800 years, or not, a couple, sorry. This resonates today, you know, two centuries later, when we have, uh, you know, there, I write about a, a memo written by Janet Yellen, who's uh, Treasury Secretary, where she says, you know, insecurity on the job will make workers more desirous of pleasing the employer and less, less likely to shirk, to slack, to strike, uh, and, and essentially more, more controllable. And these are um, exactly the fights we're having right now. We're exactly. controlling inflation. 100%. And that, that we literally are, are uh, having that because the point, you know, they might be a little bit less direct than the, the memo I just cited, but it's essentially uh, the idea that workers got too secure <laughs> and so weren't taking low-paying, demeaning jobs. And so what we needed to do was uh, ratchet up worker insecurity so that folks would, you know, essentially uh, accept worse conditions. So there might be somebody watching or listening who's thinking, yeah, but, you know, sure, that's all true. But is ambition, um, you know, innovations, the striving I mentioned before, necessarily bad? Are these bad qualities that we're trying to make more money, get more things, mm. support ourselves better, be more secure? Yeah. I don't think it's always always bad. I don't think striving is always bad. I mean, you know, this, you know, in this mad rush to find security, my point in the book is that the, the conventional channels through which we're, we're, we're told to find it ironically kind of undermine it, yeah. right? So, you know, yes, go to, go to college and, and, and get a degree so you can be upwardly mobile. But what I see so much in my work is that people are saddled with this unpayable student debt that actually undermines their economic well-being and their psychological well-being as well. Um, uh, and, you know, again, the example of, you know, find security through investing in your 401k, but actually so many invest investments in it are destabilizing the planet, poisoning communities, you know, and also there's that, you know, inherent volatility of the market that I mentioned, you know, so you're uh, always on shaky ground. Um, and so, uh, you know, so I think we need to reassess and find different ways of providing security that will actually <laughs> fulfill that definition. But, you know, I think, as you said, there are people who really attach to the idea that there has to be some kind of insecurity in order to motivate folks. Right. That's right? what we're always told about it. A guaranteed minimum income, for example. People right. who just sit on their backsides and not work at all. Right. And Not at all true. Right. Not at all true. And so the enclosers who I just quoted thought that, um, you know, many leading economists and, and uh, scholars still promote that idea. But research, for example, of a guaranteed annual income shows the opposite. Yeah that actually people are still very productive and that when they do work less, 
it's because of things like they're spending time taking care of their families or um, they are pursuing uh, higher education for the first time. So, you know, there are experiments where, y yes, teenage boys are not uh, going to work, but that's because they're actually just going to school because their family has the income to provide for them. So I think there is a debate here about motivation and what motivates us. And we are constantly being told that if people are too secure, that society's gonna collapse and uh, that we can't afford to invest in other folks. And I really wanna challenge that yeah. idea. So that gets to the question of, well, how else might we organize things? And the question of rights. Um, and you talk about how at the very period that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was getting written up, there was another convention being proposed or more rights being considered as part of what we're, as it were, entitled to by virtue of the fact that we come together in society. Mm. Um, you mentioned a guy I'd never heard of, John Humphrey, a Canadian who p played a big role and could have played a bigger one. Um, talk about him, where he came from, what was he trying to accomplish, and what about this notion of rights would change our experience of insecurity? So one thing that was fascinating to me as I was writing this is I realized that we're actually all entitled to a right to security according to international law, according to the Declaration of Human Rights. Which we don't talk about <clears throat> that much. We never talk about it. And so activists like myself, we talk about freedom of speech. We talk about um, the right to peacefully uh, or peaceably assemble. You know, we uh, talk about the free press, but we never talk about the fact we have a right to security. And there's a long battle over what that means. And that's the way rights always are. Rights are not just self-evident. You know, first off, uh, you know, you always have to fight to manifest the rights, but you also have to fight over what they actually entail. Right. And so John Humphreys was a, a Canadian, he was a democratic socialist who f was radicalized by the Great Depression. Uh, and so he was part of the left-wing social movements that laid the groundwork for the Canadian welfare state. And then after World War II, he was actually he became the lead author of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and played a really powerful role because he was you know, very much aligned with socialists from Latin America. He had his you know, own, own political values and he was insistent that uh, rights should be both, that they had to be positive and not just negative. What does that mean? And so that means you know, that uh, there's a whole framework of, of rights where it's protecting you from a tyrannical state. That's freedom from, right? Freedom All from. All those freedom from rights. Freedom from rights, you know? And those are important. Freedom from, uh, you know, illegal search and seizure, the right to a fair trial, you know, protection, defensive. And he was saying, well, you also need rights to things, right? You need the right to education, to fair wages, to unionize, um, to housing, uh, to health care, because that's how you actually, it, only through having those kinds of material security are you actually free. And he managed to uh, persevere uh, against resistance from various camps to ensure that the Universal Declaration of Rights, uh, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights had both positive and negative rights written into it. Now, later when, it was, uh, when the Cold War started picking up steam, the Universal Declaration was split into two covenants and those negative and positive, defensive and sort of constructive rights were separated. But what that you know, reminds us of is that 
this battle over a, a positive right to security was there at the genesis of the whole discourse of, of human rights. Um, and it's just sort of been erased, written out, uh, you know, and, uh, and so, well, you know, I wanted to remind us that this was uh, a really important uh, chapter and that we should pick up the, the gauntlet yeah. from Humphrey and his allies and say, no, actually, we deserve uh, and are, are legally entitled to security in this robust, constructive, positive sense. And how different might we feel about our states, our societies, our governments, if we saw that they were actually providing any of those things? I think we'd feel a lot different about it. That's Instead for sure, right? Instead of having right? a fight yeah. around freedom from government, et cetera. Right. Well, and this is, you know, and that's the thing, you know, is the state, you know, is, is the welfare state really the biggest threat to my security? Like, I don't think so, but that's what we're, that's what we've been told. Um, uh, and, you know, we've again been told that other people's security is a, is a threat to our security. And I think that that's, you know, it's just absolutely bogus. Um, and, uh, you know, and we've been told that imagining that this right might have a bigger meaning, a positive meaning, is totally naive. Well, the historical record says otherwise. On the question of, of, of naivete, um, there are people who would say, that, you know, it's all very well to talk about rights, but how are we going to achieve any of them? Mm. Um, and I was a bit reminded of your book about democracy. You know, it's a terrible idea, but we'll be sorry when, we, <laughs> when it's gone. You know, or it's, it's not everything we'd like it, but we're sorry when it's gone. Same with rights. It's like, they may not be perfect, but we'd be sorry not to have them. Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, I, I think, you know, rights let us down all the time. We have lots of rights on the page that are wonderful in theory, but don't manifest. And, well, and that's because we still have to build the power. We still have to um, create the conditions uh, for them to actually be implemented. But I, I'd always rather have the right to something good than not, because I think it helps us make a, a moral claim. And, a, you know, in a right, what, part of what a right does is it says, you know, you, you're entitled to this now and into the future, right? This is something that's not negotiable. Um, and you know that's important. So I understand. Just you know, democracy is the perfect analogy. I understand. There's all sorts of reasons that we can roll our eyes at it, but um, but I think they're still useful, if inadequate, tools. So let's talk about how we make this real. Yeah. You say in the book that insecurity is also an opportunity. Okay. How so? Yeah, that's sort of the, I think the heart of this, right? Is that fundamentally we are insecure. There's this existential insecurity. And then there's the way the economy is structured to generate these other kinds of insecurities and to, to profit from them. Um, <clears throat> uh, and, and, you know, but if we go back to that first kind, our, our shared vulnerability, there's actually a, a kind of power in that. And this to me is really real because of my organizing with the Debt Collective. We host, you know, inspired by feminist consciousness raising circles, we host things called debtors assemblies where the first step is just sharing your story, right? Talking about something, you, you know, your financial, financial situation, something that causes you a lot of shame and stress. And through that shared vulnerability, building the bonds of solidarity um, and starting to think about, okay, well, actually, how do we overcome this together? What can we do to help each other? Um, how can we tap into that, um, that element of care that I began with, right? That the myth of Cura underscores. So I think insecurity can cut both ways though. It can be a conduit to empathy and solidarity and organizing if you do the work, right? And you try to channel it. 
but we also see the way that insecurity can cause people to want to cut themselves off, to feel defensive, to think, okay, I've got to, you know, I'm afraid, I've got to go it alone. Um, and we see the way authoritarians are certainly uh, uh, talking to people's emotional yeah. lives, uh, you know, inflaming their fears and directing insecurity in another way, in an authoritarian direction. So I, I you know, I think there's a real struggle right now. And, and it's not something that uh, we can just say, oh, let's leave this be, let's see what spontaneously evolves. As the organizer in me is like, no, let's, we need to talk to people about how they're feeling, not just about statistics, <laughs> not just about facts, talk about feelings, and then channel that in this more solidaristic mm. uh, example that challenges these reactionary ideas of security and these market-driven definitions of security. So to give people an example of yes. the kind of conversations that you're talking about and the kind of work you're talking about, here's a clip from another film you made for The Intercept. Um, this one narrated by Nina Turner. I owe over $120,000 in dollars in debt and I basically, I didn't talk about it. And anytime I did, I automatically felt ashamed. I am probably about $80,000 in debt. Um, and up until recently, I was, I think my word was shame too. But while you were talking, Maddie, I was actually like, you know, it's regret. I decided to go to college because like, I'm a nerd. I love education, I love school. And I thought to myself, well, it doesn't matter how much it costs, like it's going to pay off. Like I had to go to school. I'm from a family of educators. They were like the first generation in their family, you know, in our family. So it was like, you have the opportunity, you're going to college. I was really adamant on moving towards my career goals. And so I just like pushed myself into this master's program without thinking, how am I gonna pay for it? A lack of intergenerational wealth and other structural inequities force women, and black women in particular, to borrow at disproportionate rates. And wage discrimination makes it that much harder to escape. For every dollar white men make, black women earn 61 cents a lifetime loss of almost $1 million. You gather people together. Yeah. They talk about what they're going through and they address the shame um, or at least share it. Yes. Then what do they do? You've developed some real tools that people use. Both you, you refer to a manual that you, 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 direct, you, you printed at one point, um, but also tech tools that you've been using recently. I heard yeah. you speak about a tech tool uh, in California used to prevent evictions. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. So talking is great, but strategic action is better. And I think that's, so, you know, creating a place for there to be emotional catharsis, connection, and then it's like, okay, but what are we going to do together to address this? So the Debt Collective is committed to using every kind of power we can muster. Um, and, you know, and you know, we are organizing people who are in debt. So by definition, we're not going to organize the power of money. We're not going to be making our, our mark through big donations or something like that. So we, um, you know, try to challenge the conventional narratives. Uh, so one, you know, we don't ask for debt forgiveness because we don't believe that student debtors or medical debtors or rent debtors did anything wrong. We demand debt cancellation and abolition. So trying to challenge those, those narratives that are just sort of in the ether that uh, shape the way we think about things and what we're entitled to. We uh, organize debt strikes, um, so conscious campaigns of debt refusal. So one of our slogans is can't pay, won't pay. You know, we don't think that anyone should have to pay for a medical bill where they were seeking 
uh, health care, that that's a basic right people should should have. You, um, uh, so organizing debt strikes and then using the law where and when we can. So this this is why the issue of rights is important to me, because it, they're all imperfect, but debtors have some rights. We've got some rights and they're being trampled. Because Mostly they're too complicated for us to understand. 100%. So the Debt Collective is committed. We've, we've made a series of tools to dispute student debt, uh, dispute rent debt in California. We have a new tool called the Student Debt Release Tool where we take these rights and we try to create a digital interface essentially so people can petition to have those rights respected, petition to stop an eviction, for example, or to have the Department of Education cancel their debt. Um, and then we... But we don't just rely on the law uh, alone. We then also organize people so that they are making collective demands around those rights uh, and, you know, and leveraging the, the power of their collective voices. But, you know, that's the thing. Every, you know, we, every, we can't afford to leave power on the table. And so every strategy we can figure out, we try to do, but really committed to this idea that we need, we need mass participation. We need everybody uh, to get involved and to, to fight for each other. So we need medical debtors fighting for student debtors, fighting for rent debtors, and for people who don't have debt to also recognize that they would benefit if people broadly had more economic security, right? That actually we all win from a world where folks are not financially uh, precarious um, and overwhelmed uh, because, you know, what what the debt crisis does in part is it's not just about all the millions of people who have negative net wealth. It's about the fact that, that those, uh, you follow those chains of debt up and you realize it's enriching yeah. investors <laughs> and financiers and spiraling, you know, helping, helping inequality to spiral. And that's not good for any of us. People want to see how some of that debt gets um, collateral or not collateralized. If people want to see how some of that debt gets securitized, and there's another yeah. interesting use of that word, they might want to check out our piece recently with Marjorie Kelly about wealth supremacy, which talks about exactly that. And you make the point that as soon as something's being securitized, you're probably in more peril. Yes, um, it's true. <laughs> where does the Harris-Biden, Biden-Harris, where does the Biden-Harris um, debt forgiveness plan stand right now? Well, you know, the Debt Collective, we, we did our best uh, leading up to Biden's announcement of his debt relief plan in August of last year uh, to push the administration to be more bold and to cancel debt automatically. Uh, unfortunately, Which he could do, what you reminded us. He could do, he could still do it. Um, you know, and unfortunately, uh, the Biden administration, just like the Obama administration before it, in a previous fight we had around uh, debt cancellation for for-profit debtors, was committed to making debtors apply one by one, proving that they deserved debt relief. And they bought weeks and weeks, months and months of time for a bunch of bogus right-wing lawsuits, one of which succeeded, unsurprisingly, at the ultra-conservative Supreme Court. Um, in a sense, we were validated because in her dissent, Justice Kagan wrote that her colleagues had violated the Constitution. Student debt cancellation, she affirmed, is wholly legal. Um, but that case was just about one legal mechanism, something called the HEROES Act. And the Biden administration has a Swiss Army knife of tools they can use to cancel student debt. So we are f pushing uh, for them to use another one and to be bolder uh, and braver um, the next time around because, you know, it's not just student debt cancellation, but every progressive cause is facing a judicial system that has been captured and we need to recognize that we're on different terrain uh, and fight more aggressively. So, you know, it's 
far from over. To date, the Biden administration has canceled $130 billion of student debt. That would not have happened without an uprising of, of debtors fighting to make this an issue. But we still have a long way to go, and we really need solidarity um, from, from everybody, uh, not just from people who have, have student debt, to get this done um, uh, so we can move on and do the next fight, which is to make sure that we have free uh, public education for everybody who wants it. And this kind of jubilee, even at the level of the United States, wouldn't be the first time ever that people mobilized against this kind of a debt to try to throw it off. Yeah, well, no, I mean, there have been debtors' revolts, pro-democratic debtors' revolts going back millennia, going back to the ancient world, to Rome, ancient Rome, to ancient Athens, um, going back to the colonial era, to the founding of this nation. So when we started this movement in the aftermath of Occupy Wall Street, you know, we thought we were brand new, that we were doing something that had never happened before. And it turns out that you know, actually debt has long been yeah. used as a tool of wealth accumulation and social control and that we're actually just part of a long history of debtors rising up and saying, you know, enough. Uh, we can't pay. We won't pay. We need big social change. Um, you know, and so, uh, you know, part of what keeps me going as an organizer is actually always having that historical sense saying, OK, people have fought before and, um, you know, taking, taking inspiration from them and actually being part of that long trajectory to me is really meaningful. So there is some wind, some historical wind in our back, mm -hmm. if only we knew, mm -hmm. um, if we're dead as rebelling in this way. The fact that the administration, Biden-Harris, has taken action is important because of the scale that we're talking about. Yeah. We can all gather with colleagues and make a difference, as you have with the Debt Collective, but the scale of the problem is huge. And, and yeah. you... Just before the end of the book, you don't leave us here, but you take us into this question of sort of existential insecurity. Um, and you talk about, you know, how every time indebtedness loses a farmer or loses our society a farmer who leaves their land or a doctor who leaves the profession for indebtedness or a teacher who can't afford to pay her bills teaching or you name the craft um, that people are driven out of because of their indebtedness. Um, we lose the ability, the skills that we need, perhaps, the people um, who can make the transformation that we need. Mm. And I was, that stuck with me because it felt like the clock is ticking and we haven't even talked about climate yet. Mm. So not to take you down from your high of how many people had their debts forgiven, but the scale of the problem is huge. Where do you think we are on the the clock of the universe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the scale of the problem is huge, but the solution is so simple, and it's cancel it all. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, the you know you mentioned the jubilee, which is the the tradition of erasing of debts and actually a, a restoring of land and resources to the people. You know, and and there were uh, rulers in the ancient world who did this. Yeah. What the wiping of the slate, the jubilee. It's a and Jewish tradition. Every seven years. Every seven right? years. You know, so this is uh, you know a, a religious tradition. Um, uh, with historical precedent, and, and that's what we need to do. There's no reason yeah. to bury 45 million people in debt because they wanted to get an education when liberating them would do precisely as you said. Debt cancellation would enable farmers to go back to the land or would, would enable young lawyers to go be public defenders instead of going to work for ExxonMobil or uh, Goldman Sachs or something like that. We would all benefit um, uh, in direct ways from, from liberating people from these unjust debts. And then I think we would be better situated to fight other fights, you know, to fight the climate fight, um, to fight for racial justice, to fight to 
actually uh, achieve something approaching a democracy down the road. Um, but, you know, the people who are trying to keep the status quo are, are very direct. And one interesting thing about all the lawsuits against student debt cancellation is they just said the quiet part out loud. Yeah. So some of this litigation said, we don't like student debt cancellation because it narrows the racial wealth gap. <laughs> uh, hi, we're a libertarian think tank, but we don't like student debt cancellation because it will encourage our employees to move on to other jobs. We don't like student debt cancellation because it will be harder to recruit poor people to the military, right? So we know what this is about. And, um, you know, and it's totally odious. You also make the connection to policing. How yeah. do you see that? Well, I think policing is a... Because uh, we don't just rely on economics to keep people in line. We also have over-policing. And then when people get out of prison, you have probationary law, um, debt, which yes. I, you, you talk in here in revealing ways about. Yes, yeah, what, what the Debt Collective calls carceral debt, which are all the fines and fees associated with incarceration from restitution to probation costs to Do bail. Do you say the average person leaves, having served their sentence, they leave with $13,000 in debt? And that's just one kind of debt, yeah, so often more. Um, but I think, you know, when we're, uh, uh, one of the solutions, one of these solutions that is ultimately destructive, that I've, that, you know, one of the sort of, we could call it the paradox of security, uh, is really embodied by policing. You know, people feel fearful, they feel insecure, and their instinct, more often than not, is to call for, for police, right. which, you know, uh, which so many brilliant writers and activists and organizers and citizens have said, no, <laughs> this is actually just contributing to um, the problem, right? Uh, what we need to do is to invest in care, not cops, provide those social supports that people need from you know basic things like jobs and housing to mental health care, um, uh, you know, and, and those supports, and that that's how we achieve yeah. security together. So I think policing is a, a you know something I felt was really important to discuss, uh, precisely because it is you know this wrongheaded idea that through violence, through uh, control, through criminalization, that we'll all be safer. Um, instead of addressing the root causes. Well, that takes me right back to where we began, mm -hmm. um, talking and thinking about Israel, Hamas, Gaza, the mm -hmm. West Bank. Yeah. And I have been struck in the news coverage since the attacks of October 7th by how many Israelis refer to having a safe room. Mm. And sometimes their safe rooms helped them, sometimes they didn't. But living with a safe room yeah. seems to be one version of our future, that if we have the resources, we can build ourselves a safe room. Yeah. You instead call for something else. Uh, the, t the subtitle of the book is coming together as things fall apart. That seems like the opposite of depending on our own individual private safe room. Yes. Yeah. In the beginning, I talk about the, the trend of billionaires building these bunkers. Yeah. Right. So Same. a kind of sec right security through the bunker, security through the safe room, instead of security by recognizing our shared vulnerabilities, the fact that we're actually, you know, all fearful <laughs> and that a better solution is to, to figure out how to actually take care of each other. And the root causes of some of these problems. And to address the root causes of some of these problems. Exactly. And so I think, you know, the, the word security um, you know, I think needs to be reclaimed and that we need to start thinking about more collaborative, uh, cooperative, sustainable forms of security because the impulse is understandable. I want to be safe. Yeah. 
right? And I empathize with people who are feeling fearful, but what we're doing is not working. <laughs> At the end of the day, do we just have to get more comfortable? I remember my friend, formerly Eve Ensler V, wrote a book, yes. Insecure at Last, yes. exclamation mark, in which she kind of lays out a kind of Buddhist, like, give up on security, mm. you know, within reason. Let this, we're not ever gonna be that secure. Yeah. Get used to it, was yeah. kind of the message of, of that book. Right, but I'd love to see that attitude, and I think V would totally agree, laid upon a base, you know, yes. a, a foundation yes. of Up material security. Yeah. Exactly, like once we provide housing for all, which we can do, provide education, provide health care right. for everybody, um, when we get to those root causes, the root causes that are, are actually the source of so much of the violence and conflict that we abhor, well then, okay, then we can start dealing with our existential insecurity, right? So how do we do it? I mean, our resisting of the impulse to buy more, to need more, to feel bad about how much we mm -hmm. have, however much it is, and you say rich people are also feeling inadequate, um, is kind of no match, it seems to me, for the algorithms that constantly want to sell us things. It's kind of like having a, you know, do not disturb mm. turn app turned on your phone. It doesn't really work up against the machine. How do we make the changes that you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, I mean, this is the organizer in me. Organize, organize, organize. You know, I think debtor organizing is one lever. Labor organizing is another lever. Tenant organizing uh, and, and starting to put on the agenda that actually housing shouldn't be a commodity. Right. It should be a right. All of these movements together, I think a common thread through them is actually that we're, we're trying to present a different idea of security um, and that we're addressing um, uh, the conditions that are making people feel vulnerable um, and, and manufacturing that insecurity we discussed. And so there isn't just one solution, right? There isn't just sort of one fix to all of the crises that we're facing, but, but definitely the answer is to not go towards that bunker, yeah. to go out uh, to, to, to find uh, people who are trying to engage constructively um, to move from the personal to po the political, to move to that political change. Um, and I think, you know, the Debt Collective, again, it's just one example, but I think it's a, a good one of just a small group of folks under-resourced with an idea that was laughed at and scorned when we started saying it. We said, we're gonna make the government cancel debt you know, we're gonna put free college on the political agenda. I mean, we were mocked in the mainstream <laughs> press. And now everyone takes yeah. the idea that debt cancellation is legitimate for granted. So I just think people should start their little initiatives, start their projects, you know, start dreaming and scheming, even if it sounds nuts, um, because that's actually how we're gonna get out of this mess. Do you think we have time on this planet as humans <laughs> long enough? Uh, maybe I'll segue to our, yeah. our closing com closing question, which yes. is, you know, what do you think is the story the future will tell of this moment? Well, I don't know if I have an idea of what, this, what the story that will be told is, but I have an idea of what the story I'd like to be told Go is. Go for it. And, you know, my favorite chapter of this book is actually called Beyond Human Security. And it's the chapter that is about the ecological crisis and the environment. And what I say in that is, you know, actually folks, it's not enough to just think about human security to think about our species because we're embedded in webs of life that are bigger than us in ecosystems. We are connected to plants, to air, to water. And that if we want to achieve security, we're gonna have to think beyond our species alone. And that is, I think, the horizon that we actually need 
Um, you have a great word in there that somebody else coined. Is it macho petroleumism or petromachoism? Petromasculinity. Petromasculinity. <laughs> yeah. We have to get over it. We have to get over petromasculinity. We have to get over uh, a human-centric worldview. And if I think that that, um, you know, because when we try to separate ourselves to isolate the human as sort of superior, as above and apart from the web of life, I actually think that's a big part of what's undermining us and what's driving the ecological crisis because we're treating the land, the water, the air, the fossil fuels in the ground just as resources to extract. Um, and so I would love it if we look back at this moment and, and said, okay, the, the climate crisis, the fires burning, the droughts caused an awareness that we need to humble ourselves um, and recognize that our security will only be achieved when we actually uh, re you know, recognize uh, that we're just one small part of a bigger web of life. Astra Taylor's book is The Age of Insecurity Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. Astra, thank you so much for Thanks joining for me. It's me. been such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks. On this couch. Yeah, it was great. It's very <laughs> comfortable. I'll come back. <laughs> Financial language does a lot to obscure what's really going on. And for more on that, you might be interested in our conversations on this program with Marjorie Kelly. In her book on wealth supremacy, she talked about how this language of security and insurance and stability and equity masked a whole lot of exploitation and dangerous practices going on. Well, so too, Astra Taylor says maybe we need to think twice about the word disruption, while markets and businesses like security disruption has brought us most of the changes we care about today. At the end of her book, she says that she fears business as usual more than she fears anarchy. She writes, we have the right to vote, weekends and minimum wages, laws against sexual harassment and racial discrimination, and basic, although inadequate, environmental regulations because ordinary people caused what the powerful took to be mayhem like the disabled activists who stopped traffic with their wheelchairs to demand accessibility, or the indigenous organizers who blockaded pipelines to protect their water and air. I'm going to resolve to think more positively about mayhem in the weeks ahead, and perhaps to investigate my fears of disruption. Can we embrace the kind of insecurity that just might shake things up in a good way? Thanks for joining me. For more information on today's show, go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show and check out our episode notes. That's also where you'll find an invitation to the premiere of each week's show on our YouTube channel, where you can chat in real time with Laura Sundays at 1130 a.m. Eastern time. Thanks for listening. This show's produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, with Sabrina Artel, Nat Needham, David Neumann, Jeanette Hernandez, Sarah Miller, Rory O'Connor, and Jeannie Hopper. Major funders for this program include the Novo Park Shift Cloud Mountain and New York Women's Foundations, the Rising Fund, the Tides Foundation, the Women's Foundation of California, Just Impact, Jane Fonda, Kim Connor and Nick Groombridge, the Wilson Family Fund, and listeners like you. Stay kind, stay curious. Until the next time, for The Laura Flanders Show, I'm Laura.